There's a beautiful Shaker song called Love is Little, and in it, it describes the various facets of love. Love can be little, love can be low, love can be quiet, love can be strong. And in the two passages that I've included for our service of worship today, I would say one describes love as little and one describes love as large. One describes the desire of God for the liberation of his people from Egypt, and the other describes the, the great cry that a woman brought to Jesus at one point in his life looking for healing for her daughter. So first, a reading from the book of Exodus. It might be the story of love that's large. Chapter three, verses seven and nine through 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. Now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you. And, you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And a reading from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him saying, send her away for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. He answered, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. Her daughter was healed from that moment. In the name of God, the Creator, the Christ, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Union Theological Seminary is located at the corner of Broadway and 116th Street in New York City, right across from Teachers College and Columbia University. Over the years, it's become known as the School of the Prophets because in the teaching of the teachers, and in the passions of the students, there has often been this great desire to see the realization of God's justice on earth. So there's always been a very special passion at Union to understand how ministry relates to those who are on the fringes of society, the most disenfranchised, the most fragile. In the words of the African-American author, Howard Thurman, those who live constantly with their backs against the wall. When I was a student at Union, I think most of my classmates would have said that they were drawn to the school precisely because of its historic commitment to justice. Yes, 
We were interested in the life of local congregations and what they could be, but we were especially interested to understand how those local congregations could be part of some greater movement for justice and well-being. So at Union, you could experience the constant feeding of a dream where all people might one day find, to, find a way to live in security and harmony and abundance. So in one class, we'd be learning about church history, and in another class, we might be learning about social protest movements in the 20th century. In the 1980s, so deep was the commitment from students and teachers in support of the anti-apartheid movement then taking place in South Africa, that even when exams were in session, you could count on union students to be involved in protest movements against apartheid that were taking place in midtown Manhattan. They probably preferred to be at the protest movements rather than taking their exams, truth be told. For those of us who went on to become pastors in local congregations, we discovered that the interests of local church members were not always neatly aligned with our passions for justice here, near here, and far from here. This is not to say that people in local churches were not interested in issues that affected people hundreds if not thousands of miles from our doorsteps. When I was in my early 30s, I reconnected with my church school teacher from my childhood because I wanted an opportunity to say thank you to her for all the goodness she had brought into my life. And when I asked her what she was doing, she said, well, I'm not teaching church school anymore. But she said, I am, a, I am the director of my congregation's committee for peace and justice. And there were a lot of other people like her, Catherine Suliak, all across the country. But if those of us who'd been called to be pastors were paying attention to our congregations at all, it was clear that the people entrusted to our care had a lot of things on their minds. They had families and jobs and saw themselves as caretakers of the church's traditions. They were always trying to figure out how to meet the budget, fix the leaky roof, and recruit, recruit the team that was gonna lead that year's annual clam bake. It could be very interesting when Passionate pastors from schools like Union, tending to have what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called the drum major instinct, came to realize that not many people were lining up behind them when they're beating drums for the justice parade. Members of churches that I served certainly recognized that matters of concern about war, famine, poverty, inequality, discrimination, we're not to be shoved away from our consciousness. We're not to be denied. But they were also saying to us, their pastors, hey, a little help, please. My teenage son is failing school and doesn't have any friends. My parents are frail. My company just laid off a lot of people and I'm worried I might be next. What I discovered as a young pastor was that in many local congregations, there was often an uneasy alliance between those who longed for the church to take more and better and stronger stands against some issue of injustice, either locally or internationally, and for those who were afraid that taking those stands would pit some church members against one another or make the church look somehow political, forgetting that the word polis 
The word for city really means the well-being of a place. In one of the congregations that I served, there was a group called Pruning Hooks. And trust me, a group with the name Pruning Hooks is probably never going to attract a lot of members. The group was so named because there is a passage in one of the great prophets of the Bible, Isaiah, who dreamt of a day, as he said, when you shall beat your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks. In other words, weapons of destruction become gardening tools, weapons, implements of cre creation and creativity. One Sunday each month, this was the church's tradition, a member of that committee was given the opportunity to draw the congregation's attention towards some matter of prophetic ministry, either locally or internationally. And I think that people in the congregation viewed this in two ways. First of all, it was annoying because it was this constant intrusion of an issue or a concern that just seemed, in many cases, unsolvable, requiring tremendous resources and energy. On the other hand, the people in my congregation viewed this and these kinds of announcements as absolutely necessary because they kept alive that energy of prophetic ministry that is such an important theme in the Bible and has been such an important theme throughout the entirety of Christian history. This little group, with its odd name, was always asking us to remember those who were in danger of being forgotten, to be aware of the disenfranchised, or again, as Howard Thurman used to call them, the disinherited, to pay attention and to wonder, to wonder whether we might not be able to respond in some creative way to someone else's plight. What I noticed after my arrival at Round Hill Community Church is that there has been a strong tradition here of pastoral care, which is care for the members and friends of our congregation and commitment to broader social outreach. On the one hand, people looking after people, which is the genius of the Christian movement. We, they, shall know, they will know you are Christians by your love was a hymn that was associated with the early church. And you can see that at Round Hill Community Church. People visiting others when they're in hospital, when they're alone, when they're recovering from a fall. Reaching out to one another during the pandemic. You can also see a kind of growing prophetic ministry. Grants to organizations locally and internationally working on behalf of vulnerable people. Mission trips to different parts of the country and the world. Food programs. Involvement in Habitat for Humanity, building homes for homeless people. Mission trips to Haiti, support for Heifer Project International. Despite the challenges brought on by the pandemic, this tradition of these two kinds of ministry working in sync with one another has not lessened. We still try, strive to take care of one another and look after one another. And our broader outreach the grants we make to organizations that need our support, like Hope for Haiti, working with extraordinarily vulnerable people in the southern uh, area of Haiti, and the local food, pro food programs, that's all continued. In fact, in the years since the pandemic, these ministries of outreach 
have actually grown. We've had people concerned about gun violence. There's an echo action team. Breakfast Run draws people together to, to travel to New York City to provide food and hygiene kits and friendship to people who are under-resourced. Church World Service is an organization that encourages local congregations to support their work, providing disaster relief kits for those in the United States affected by natural disaster. And they're gonna to come to Round Hill Community Church in March so that we can join in their work. So although in some ways we're smaller as a congregation than we were before the pandemic, there's a growing emphasis in increasing our commitment to love, both for one another and to the wider world. That's a lot to celebrate. But we may wonder, especially as we consider our own somewhat vulnerable position, whether we have the bandwidth to do what we're doing and embrace some new horizon of care. I also appreciate how challenging it can be when someone comes into our sanctuary on a Sunday morning or listens to this online service, just looking to breathe, lower the shoulders a bit, recenter, and suddenly has the Round Hill Community Church equivalent of a pruning hooks announcement. It's very possible that in the face of such an announcement, we will say, hey, I'm trying to, I'm trying to recalibrate my life here. When I'm having thoughts like these myself, and I do, I tend to pull up from memory a quotation from a book called Deeply Woven Roots written by a friend of mine, Gary Gunderson. It's the best book of ministry, on ministry, about ministry that I've ever read. And there's a quotation in this book that I use a lot. In the book he says, when looking for clues to the future, and by the way, this could have been written after the pandemic, but it was written before, we look for groups of people who are approaching the hardest problems expectantly, eager for innovative approaches. Ironically, congregations that do open themselves, hopefully, are guaranteed to attract a constant deluge of problems, requests, and questions that demand new words and new partners. These are the congregations on the turbulent growing edge and reflected in their life, you can catch a sense of the future God is creating. And what I love about that quotation, he says that the more we open ourselves to care, the more people will come to us in search of care. However, in the process of doing so, we will develop new partnerships, so not all the caring will be done by us but by a wider network, a bigger family of friends who collectively will be working to meet needs locally and beyond locally. We're always being called to love. And that can happen when we're responding to the needs of a child or a teenager or another family member in our own household. That can be happening when a neighbor reaches out to us for help or when we're responding to a local issue that deserves our, our attention or when we're thinking about some larger issue like climate change. We're always being called to respond to love. And part of the mystery of love is that it actually has the power to nourish us 
even as it's asking from us some of our energy. If the thing we're doing is done out of love, then love, I think, has the capacity to feed us even as we're feeding others. How often in my life has someone come to me to say, you know, I didn't think I had the resources, the energy to help this person who reached out to me, but I did, and afterwards I felt a new sense of energy. True confession. This past week, I was asked to preside at a service of worship and including the Sacrament of Holy Communion at the Nathaniel Witherell in Greenwich, which is a rehabilitation facility where there are also some people who live as permanent residents. And I was there to preside at this service for those residents. And here's the true confession. I was not feeling a high level of energy looking forward to that event, anticipating it, but I wanted to do it and so I went. I, I'd like to think I was doing at least a little bit of it out of a spirit of love. When I got there, uh, there's a wonderful staff of chaplains there. And when I arrived, I met each one of the residents in person by name. We exchanged names. And they've had some challenging times at the Nathaniel Witherell recently with COVID, but luckily they are at the moment COVID free. And so there was a very large group there. And as I greeted each person by name, I felt more and more love, more and more energy filling up my body and my heart. So that by the time I left that service that day, I was walking on air. What I'm trying to hold together in my ministry is a vision of love that has room for deeply personal experiences like that. And occasions when we might be drawn or challenged to confront an issue of injustice that affects the well-being of some persons or groups here, near here, or far from here. What I'm hoping that we can hold together as a congregation is a vision of love that includes both of those sides of caring. What have sometimes been called the prophetic and the pastoral sides of ministry. The one that is attentive to the deeply personal details of life and the other is not afraid to look at the big picture. To understand how we can be a force for good in a much larger way. This year, the Grammy Awards featured an appearance by the singer and songwriter Joni Mitchell. I didn't hear her performance, but for some reason, as soon as I heard that she was there, I thought of her song, Both Sides Now. It's a song she wrote when she was a very young woman. It was actually made famous by Judy Collins. But Joni Mitchell wrote the song and initially uh, brought it to the surface. And a singer named Nicole Nordeman spoke about the song's influence on her. And she said that this song, Both Sides Now, is the perfect portrait of what it means to understand love when you are young and hopeful and naive, and then again, when you are wise and weathered from both sides. Now, both sides, it's all about love. Our experience of it as a younger person, our experience of it as an older person. And as I thought about that phrase, both sides now, 
I thought about those different sides of love in Christian life, that pastoral side, that prophetic side. We need both of them in order to have a complete and whole picture of what it means to be loved and to love. As people of faith, I think we're always attending to one side or another of love, maybe both sides at the same time. One side of love may be lived out in a fairly small circle, and there are still often justice issues even in those smaller circles. When I was a teenager, I thought there were justice issues in our home, and I was the victim of injustice. I had to start a labor union of one person in order to demand my rights. So for today's service, I read the story of Jesus and his very awkward encounter with a foreign woman because here's a story about love in, in a very small setting, but one which really changed the heart and life of Jesus. This woman who came to him asking him to heal her daughter was met with a very rude, crude reply from Jesus. And she didn't take that. She stood up to him and she demanded well-being for her daughter. And he agreed to that and said that this woman's faith was remarkable. So he wound up through this, in this smaller setting, experiencing a larger vision of love that would carry him through the rest of his ministry. So here's this woman who is a foreigner to Jesus who opens up his narrow vision and gives him a much broader framework upon which to live and move and have his being for the rest of his life. So that's a story about justice and love in a very intimate setting. That's one side of the love that we're talking about. But there are justice issues that are also larger than those smaller circles. And attention to that other side of love requires that we not turn away when we're called to be involved and that we not make ourselves irresponsible or too responsible. In his novel, A Dry White Season, one of the characters in Andre Brink's book says, there are two kinds of madness that have to be avoided. One is the belief that we can do nothing, and the other is the belief that we have to do everything. So I included the story of Moses in our second scripture lesson for this service because God confronted Moses and indicated to him that he was gonna call him to be a leader of the people of Israel so that they could achieve their liberation from their bondage in Egypt. And Moses wanted no part of that. He did not want his small world being wedged open into something much more larger and even more significant. But God stayed with him and wouldn't let him say no and really made it clear to Moses that he wasn't asking him to do everything, but he was asking him to be the spokesperson for his people. Granted, an enormous responsibility, but this was the one thing that he was calling Moses to do. One person I'm aware of who holds together so beautifully both sides of love, this more intimate, personal side, this larger, more prophetic side, is a man named John Perkins. He's an African-American pastor who lives in Mendenhall, Mississippi. He recently celebrated, I think, I have this correct, his 93rd birthday. And for over 60 years, he has been involved in community development and ministry in his home state of Mississippi. As a young man, 
He was arrested without cause. He was taken to a jail in a small town in Mississippi. He was tortured. And that night, he had, he had an inner reckoning with himself, whether he was going to move in a direction that was going to respond with violence and revenge, or whether he was really going to embrace the words of Jesus, love your enemies. And he chose love. And so he has tried to be a witness for that love throughout his entire life. He's a community organizer, so he helps to develop neighborhoods, especially in Mississippi, but he has a network of community organizations all across the country. And when he's asked what he does, he doesn't say he's a pastor. He says, I'm a developer. And I think that's interesting because I think the word pastor for us means that sort of more intimate side of love, but developer is something larger. And maybe this is true for both of us. We are ministers and we are developers. And he understands that people won't join big movements unless they feel that they matter on a personal basis. So he understands that confronting an injustice always begins with conversations, with listening, with one-on-one -on -one meetings, asking people where they find themselves in relationship to a specific issue. So he's someone who's very good at that side of love that is attentive and caring. And some years ago, he was traveling through Mississippi with a writer named Charles Marsh who was interviewing him. And as they were driving along, getting to know one another, Charles Marsh felt compelled to confess some of his family's history. And he, he, he told John Perkins, he said, you know, I see in my family some very deeply racist tendencies. And he said, unfortunately, it's especially evident in my grandmother. And he talked in greater detail about the comments that she had made that really rubbed against the grain of Charles Marsh's ethical world values. And so in this process of talking, Charles Marsh was beginning to feel unburdened. And at one point, as they're driving along, John Perkins taking all that in, and he asked Charles Marsh, he said, does your grandmother have a garden? And Charles Marsh said, well, yeah, but what does that have to do with anything? Well, he said, what does she like to plant in her garden? Cucumbers, mint, tomatoes, what, what'd she like to plant? Charles Marsh told him. And John Perkins said, you know, I love blueberries. I love to make blueberry pie, I put blueberries on everything. And he said, when you, when, when I get home and you drop me off, I'm going to go in the house and I'm going to get some blueberries and I want you to bring them to your grandmother. Now that's a man who knows both sides of love, who has the dream that's been a dream for so many years of a beloved community in which all people are treated fairly, equally with justice, but who understands that sometimes you have to reach out to a person who doesn't line up with your values and give them a small package of blueberries. The love that's personal, the love that's universal. I wanna know how to love like that. Both sides now. Amen.